What's up, everybody? This is FTW with Ahmad Khan. I'm your host, Ahmad Khan, and joining me today on this Phase Korea edition is George Geddes of Dot Esports. Yep, going good. On today's show, we'll discuss Ubisoft's lawsuit with Apple and Google regarding the alleged mobile clone of Rainbow Six. We'll then discuss esports companies taking federal PPP loans. But first, LCK. FaceClan and NRG have sent letters of intent to join the LCK. George, when you first heard the story, what was your immediate reaction? Well, my initial reaction was that I was actually relatively surprised with FaZe's introduction because when I see like a North American brand try and get into, you know, this new franchise league that's coming next year, I'd be sort of quite like taken by surprise for it considering, you know, FaZe has never been involved in League of Legends in any capacity really. Uh, NRG, however, have obviously been involved in the past, but, you know, FaZe have never been in League of Legends before, so when I saw it, and when a lot of other people saw it as well, is that we sort of assumed this was like a method of, like, globalization by FaZe Clan. I mean, you know, you can look at some of the people, that, or some of the organizations, sorry, that are currently in the LCK, and they're not really these sort of global brands. They just recognize teams, you know, with some of the best players, obviously. I mean, realistically, you could argue, you know, Gen G, they've got, you know, the Korean and United States links, and it's shown that, they, you know, globalization Globalization could sort of work the other way, you know, especially with NG. T1 are doing it as well. Obviously, they started with, with this league team. And then, you know, now they're trying to get into like Valorant, for example, with, with North American CS players. So when I first saw it and when the news first broke, I, you know, I was quite surprised. NRG, on the other hand, you know, they were in the LCS, um, but they had quite a poor record. So realistically, they could just be trying, trying again. But one thing I do actually want to mention i think monty brought this up was phase clan obviously has this sort of strange history in regards to sort of gambling and i thought this was actually quite an important angle because i don't know if this is going to have you know a big impact or not because realistically i mean obviously you know phase has backing their ventures etc but phase clan as an organization banks should i say recently revealed that you know he was involved in gambling and you know got involved in the csgo gambling and stuff like that in other esports but in Korea, these sort of in South Korea, sorry, these sort of gambling laws they don't really take too kindly to it. There's a sort of duality in South Korea right now where tourists can gamble, but locals can't. So this going to be something that sort of plays a part. I don't know. I think it's also important to remember that when they submit this letter of intent, it doesn't guarantee that the organization will actually get a spot in the league, which most people seem to sort of be assuming. It's just suggesting to me that, well, and suggesting to everyone else, obviously, that FaZe want to get involved in League of Legends, and this is their sort of way of doing it. But this, again, raises another question for me is, you know, FaZe initially is a North American organization. Why would they not try and get involved in the LCS first? I mean, this raises a few more questions, you know, perhaps they try to do something behind the scenes. Maybe LCS teams are sort of selling for quite a high price, maybe. It just raises more questions than it does really have answers. But one thing I, I will say in regards to why FaZe has actually decided to try and join the LCK next year is the fact that it's the most basically the most popular circuit that league of legends has got like 463 million unique viewers or something like that when it was when it was going on the spring split they have like 820,000 like average concurrent viewers i can't remember the stats off the top of my head but it was it was something along those lines the funny thing is, is that these numbers weren't coming from you know just uh, asian viewers or anything like that they were actually a majority of them were coming from foreign countries I think it was like 60, 62%, I'm pretty sure. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I, I think it was around that number where foreign viewers are actually getting into the LCK. And to me, this shows, you know, maybe FaZe have looked at these stats or maybe they've looked at previous stats and gone, this is like an emerging sort of ground for, for International League of Legends. 
Obviously, the LCK is known to be, you know, one of the most prestigious regions, has some of the best players in the world. So you can see why they sort of make their intention known. But realistically, the questions that it raises is still quite prominent in regards to the other leagues, the LCS, and what they can actually do from this. Phase as a very particular culture, you could say. And, you know, when I've, I've spoken to Emily Rand from ESPN on previous episodes, and she talks about the importance of kind of like team synergy. And I wonder to what extent does FaZe's kind of bombastic... I, I'm trying to find the right words for it, but it's kind of... Uh, it's very like... It's like a cool brand, you know? Like, it's sort of like a, an out there kind of brand. I get you. Yeah, yeah. And like, how will that jive with probably a team that they buy in the LCK? Yeah, it's strange, really, because... Realistically, FaZe, obviously, as a brand, is one of the biggest brands in the world. They will always have this sort of global uh, influence and outreach. But realistically, in regards to their sort of, you know, bombastic approach and it being more of like a family than uh, having several teams, I think that's something they're actually trying to break out of when you look at it. You know, they're they're signing players in, in CS. You know, they've got CS teams, a Fortnite team. So I don't think it will have a major effect. But I think in regards to sort of social interaction and and the way will phase fans actually really care about the lck and will lck fans really care about phase clan these lck viewers they're known to sort of watch the best teams in the world t1 biggest organizations you know sandbox all these all these these different organizations that they're sort of aware of familiar with they've been historical in the league and when they see a massive North American brand get in, you sort of think, you know, will this have a drastic impact or not? We really don't know. But the way I look at things is the fact that because FaZe is such a big brand and they have this sort of global outreach and the fact that they will probably have fans anywhere you go, whether this makes a huge link between the the fan base in, in the Western, in, in the West, sorry, and, uh, you know, that Asian outreach, I don't, I really don't know. But honestly, I think it will be effective in the end because I see this as a good move for North American organizations, seen as though League of Legends is the biggest esport. They try to try to get into an emerging, well, I say emerging league, emerging for, you know, foreign audience, which, if anything, will just boost FaZe's brand and notoriety, in my opinion. Well, I guess I, I will have to see if either team makes it. With that, thank you so much for jumping on. Yeah, that's fine. And now I'm joined by Brandon Huffman, a video game and digital media lawyer at Odin Law and Media. So there's actually a bit of an update to what's been going on. So the game that Ubisoft has been suing Apple and Google over, this mobile game that they claim is a, quote, ripoff of Rainbow Six, this game called Area 52, has been completely shut down by Alibaba Group Holdings. And it's interesting that what Ubisoft claimed was a ripoff, it's now shut down, and they're claiming that it's because of, quote, gameplay issues. These gameplay issues don't seem like they were glitches, but actual design issues. And these design issues include the game being too hard or having too long of a learning curve, which made it so that players would only play for like 30 minutes before like deleting the game. And that's what they were citing. But if you look on YouTube, there's a whole community of people who play this game, spend money on this game. And of course, like any money that they had spent on this game is now completely kaput. With all that said and done... This lawsuit between Ubisoft, Google, and Apple, I mean, does shutting down the game end this story? So it it largely depends on what Ubisoft's motivation for bringing the lawsuit was. It could. And I, I know that some developers, when they see this sort of thing happening, what their real goal is to shut it down. It's to get it off the marketplace so that fans aren't confused and that fans will continue to play the original title. That said, Ubisoft has also brought in Apple and Google, as you mentioned, and bringing in the distribution platforms it may be that Ubisoft has a larger motivation here than just getting it taken down. And if that's the case, then I don't think it changes the course for the lawsuit. Interesting. But what do you mean by larger motivation? 
Yeah, so there's been this historical problem with both Apple and Google where there's a lot of borderline infringement or actual infringement on the Play Store and the, you know, the App Store. And developers, especially smaller developers, don't really have the ability to go after Apple and Google and assert the sort of legal power that it would take to get them to take it seriously. They have what's called DMCA, safe harbor immunity from copyright infringement lawsuits. But in order for the DMCA to actually apply, they have to be willing to take down infringement when they're put on notice of it. And this lawsuit specifically alleges that they've not done that and that they've been put on notice and not taken down the infringement, which I know a lot of indie developers have struggled with where they notify Apple or Google nothing happens. It doesn't get taken down. It could be that Ubisoft is sort of pushing that line a little bit farther and saying, no, Apple, Google, we're suing you. You need to take this more seriously. The fact that they've taken it down now doesn't absolve them of liability for the pre-lawsuit damages that might exist. So just kind of like that Free Use Protection Act, that was essentially kind of agreed upon by a judge after the whole stuff with YouTube and people who would use parts of other YouTube videos in terms of commentary and they would claim it under free use and then that would extend to they would claim it under free use but then you know they would still get sued or still get copyright notices or strike downs do you think this would potentially extend to those indie developers where they could now have some more power if there is precedent with Ubisoft being able to really hound Apple and Google in taking down this game yeah so it's a little bit different than the YouTube situation the YouTube situation was actually requiring YouTube to consider fair use and when they took down videos. And in this case, I think even if Apple or Google were considering fair use, there's not a great fair use argument. If everything Ubisoft says in their complaint is true, obviously, there's not a great fair use argument. Fair use is a multi-factored test. So setting that sort of aside... If Ubisoft can generate a precedent through this lawsuit where Apple and Google are held accountable for something on the Play Store or the App Store that is a clone game, essentially, and they can establish that precedent by not only winning in the district court or even losing in the district court and then winning in the appeals court and getting that appeals court precedent with a more clearly defined standard for liability under the DMCA. Absolutely, I think Apple and Google would shift their behavior towards the indie developers. I guess moving forward, when it comes to Alibaba Group, or I guess the state of just clone games in general, do you think that any of the other clone games are going to start you know, sweating a little and will they start taking down some of their other games? I doubt it, to be honest. One of the big things that happened here is that the company that made the game obviously is affiliated with Alibaba, which is an enormous company. Most of the clone games on the marketplace are made by very small companies or even a single developer sitting in usually on U.S. jurisdiction, which makes enforcement more difficult. In this case, Alibaba has plenty of ties to California that would make it much more enforceable to get a judgment against them. Moving forward, I mean, when do you think a lawsuit like this, like how long will it take to fully get litigated or settled? Uh, If it doesn't settle, it'll be years. If it settles, it could be tomorrow. My assumption here is that Ubisoft, if they wanted it to get taken down, is probably satisfied now and will settle with Apple and Google to not let it get put back up or something along those lines. But if they're going for the precedent, then it'll be probably two, three years minimum, not counting appeals. And for the players that had thrown in money into this game, are they entitled to any kind of refund? Typically not. I haven't read the terms of service for this game specifically, but generally speaking, when you purchase an in 
in-game asset, what you're actually purchasing is a license that's a terminable license to use that asset in the game so long as the game continues to operate, but the developer or publisher has the right to terminate that license. So there's probably not a good recourse for them. That might vary slightly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Some countries have more favorable refund laws than others, but in general, uh, the terms of service for most apps would say, no, they don't really have a good recourse. Well, I guess that's unfortunate for, I guess, some of these players. But now, do you actually feel that... I assume this game was probably popular in developing markets because it was on mobile. It was so much more easily accessible. For a company like Ubisoft that's wanting to protect its IP, obviously, you know, if something is a blatant copy, it's not good for it to exist on the market. Do you feel that players would then be interested in wanting to move over to the PC version of this game? Yeah, it's hard to say. Like you said, I think mobile games are more accessible for developing markets. There's probably a reason why people went to this game. If you look at the complaint and you look at some of the reviews that are cited in the complaint, a lot of people, it seems like, were playing this specifically because they they liked the Ubisoft game. They liked Rainbow Six, right? So it seems like a lot of people were already playing Rainbow Six and wanted to do something that was a mobile experience, maybe while they're waiting in line somewhere or... You know, they're maybe they're in quarantine in a house with no good PC or something like that. But in the developing markets, I doubt if players who currently play on a phone are going to go out and buy a PC capable of running this game. Well, I guess what I wanted to get to was, you know, I, I haven't read like the exact terms of the lawsuit, but I mean, is Ubisoft or could they make a claim that, you know, they had lost potential sales because this game existed? Sure. So the way copyright law works, they can prove actual damages if they if they wanted to make the argument that they lost actual revenue they could theoretically point to losses in sales they could try to make an argument that they lost sales they could also point to what mobile rights for a popular AAA game typically get licensed for and argue that they lost that license fee because that license fee would have had to have been paid they can also look at the profits that the infringer made as the profits they could have made had they released it on mobile. So there are a lot of different ways to measure that. And then there's also what are called statutory damages, which is we don't even have to prove we were damaged. We can just get these damages because the law says we can get them. And then last question, do you ever feel that this game could reemerge on the market under a new skin? Yeah, I think it probably could. I think, you know, if you if you look through the complaint, you look at some of the screenshots, a lot of it is very, very similar. It's an uphill battle to argue this was not at least some UX artist and some game designer looking to Rainbow Six for inspiration. And I think that you could have, a, you know, a tactical 3D shooter that is not infringing on Rainbow Six. I just think that that would require a lot more creativity than what they put in here. Certainly changing things like, you know, having the the icons for different menu items be not exactly the same as the other game, right? That said, if they re-release it and it's different enough, it, it won't get them out of the lawsuit. They'll still be in the lawsuit for the period when it was the allegedly infringing game. Very good. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And now we have Washington Post editor Mikhail Klimentov jumping on to talk about esports companies taking PPP loans. Hi, Mikhail. Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? Great, great. Let's just jump into your story, right? And you published something earlier this week regarding esports companies and them taking Paycheck Protection Program loans from the government when maybe they shouldn't have needed to, especially given that some esports and video gaming are doing so well. You know, in your report, you touch on two companies, Super League Gaming and Allied Esports, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's those two companies and Launcher, the Washington Post, we were tipped off by a watchdog organization that basically sent us over a, a dossier that said, 
we just wanted to let you know these two companies have applied for and received PVP loans from the government. The thing that really got us interested in looking into this story was that the narrative around esports right now, and our coverage has indulged in this narrative too, is that esports should be doing really well right now. The sense is that everybody's at home, everybody is at their TV, and traditional sports aren't on, so people are tuning into Twitch more. People are tuning into, you know, whenever ESPN is showing, you know, NASCAR races. For me, the question of how higher engagement translates into actual financial gain uh, has been a, just a big question for me. Seeing these two companies applying and receiving these loans raised some red flags for me is what I'll say. I mean, let's just kind of lay this all out. You know, while you and I are both journalists and we are objective in our craft, I think we can confidently say objectively the doling out of the PPP loan program has been kind of a disaster where you're seeing stories of, you know, multi-billion dollar companies getting these loans for paycheck protection when they can easily go on the open market and get whatever loans they need. Or it's like there was a story today out in Florida where a company with literally two people received a $1 million plus loan. Or of course, like the number of black and Hispanic businesses that haven't been getting loans because they don't have traditional relationships with banks. I think it's important for us to kind of make a delineation between Super League and Allied, right? Where maybe since Super League is a completely online platform that they might be doing pretty okay at the moment, while Allied, they do, they make what, 38% of their revenue from live events. Yeah, exactly. It was pretty important in the story for us to try and differentiate between these companies because I think their businesses are quite different. Allied is a venue operator for the most part. Uh, it also licenses out content. It has kind of a fleet of two trucks, I think, for, for mobile esports events. It also has a, a pretty sizable part of its business in poker. Super League Gaming is kind of on a different level in that it's more involved in amateur esports. A lot of the kind of videos advertising it show kind of events with influencers for fans. One of the kind of recurring images in their advertising is they'll take over theaters and host Minecraft sessions for kids. So they are different businesses and have different needs, at least as it relates to the impact of the pandemic. Well, I think another thing that people, if they're just tuning in or just like aren't really kept up with the whole PPP loan program is that what's the big deal? If somebody takes a loan and pays it back with interest, isn't that ultimately good for the federal government? But, uh, you know, as you said in your reporting, which has been widely reported elsewhere, is that it's pretty much assumed that that these loans will be forgiven, meaning that these are essentially grants that are being handed out to companies, which is maybe why so many very successful companies that have a lot of capital decided to apply for these loans. Yeah, I think what's important to consider is that there's nothing nefarious about the fact that these eventually become grants. The intent was really the government wanted people to stay in their jobs and for businesses to be able to support employees. The issue is that I think in the popular imagination, a lot of people saw the Small Business Administration administering these PPP loans and thought, this is going to be for, you know, mom and pop businesses on Main Street. I think the reality of the intent was that it was just to hold on to good jobs. And there are kind of very broad definitions of you know what that actually means. Because there weren't any strict guidelines in place, the Treasury had to keep coming back and basically amending the guidelines around these loans. As I reported, at a certain point, hedge funds were allowed to accept money from the PPP program. 
And after a public outcry, hedge funds were you know, expressly forbidden from applying for this money. Similarly, at a certain point in April, I believe it was April 23rd, the Treasury released guidance around whether publicly traded companies should be applying for these loans. And the general thinking there was that, no, if you're publicly traded, you probably have access to capital markets. And so you don't really need the government's support here. The reality is, and this was something that, that was brought up by one of the experts I interviewed, is that you know, access to capital markets is maybe not even that realistic for kind of smaller publicly traded companies right now. It was ultimately very difficult, and this is something I hope got across in the article. I didn't want to make the deliberation regarding whether these esports companies deserved to take this money, or I don't think there is a hard answer. I think the reality is that the narrative around esports is that it's doing really well, which kind of raised this question for us in the first place. The administration of these loans has been really unclear, and the guidelines and guidance from the Treasury just hasn't been very helpful, has been you know more muddying than, than clarifying. And finally, if you look at the financials for all of these esports companies, or at least these two, and I kind of have my suspicions about the rest of the industry, you see that there are deeper problems than COVID-19. Both of the companies that I reported on had been operating on million and multi-million dollar losses on a, on a regular basis. It was sometimes hard to draw a line and say, okay, COVID-19 is going to have a, an enormous impact on this company, therefore it needs this loan. The reality is that maybe it'll have an impact. Most businesses in some capacity are going to be impacted. But there are all of these questions around, you know, the industry more broadly, the actual impact guidance around these loans, that it would be hard for me to make that deliberation. And I wanted to leave that for the most part, kind of up to the reader. Mm. Well, you know, I think just in the same way that uh, a lot of people assumed media would do well in the midst of all of this, because people, of course, would be at home reading more content. When a lot of media companies that rely on ad dollars, when those started to trickle out, you know, we've seen layoffs at places like The Verge and Quartz laying off 40% of its staff. And then, you know, you have to look at a lot of esports companies, which also do provide services for free. Maybe I'm overstepping my, my bounds here, but it could be an assumption that if media on the journalism end is losing ad revenue, then it's you know, quite possible that esports is too losing ad revenue and that maybe there is a case to be made for PPP loans. Do you have any thoughts about that? What I would say is that that is actually one of the arguments for, uh, that's maybe the wrong way of framing it, but the companies right now, or at least the two companies in the story, have been playing up an increase in engagement. And you kind of have these two trends that it's not clear how they, they interact. On the one hand, you have increased engagement with the content of both of these companies. In fact, the day after the Watchdog organization kind of tipped us off to both of these companies, one of them cold emailed us and was like, hey, we want to talk about like all the incredible stuff that's happening right now. Uh, we have increased engagement, more people are on our platform, etc., 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 at the same time, you have advertisers kind of retreating from ad markets. And, you know, the prices for ads, as I understand the system, are going down to kind of entice advertisers to come back. As a result, even if you have higher engagement, depending on what system you're using to deliver these ads, you might not be seeing a substantial return. It's 
hard to land on a clean answer there because on the one hand, yes, advertisers are, are, are backing out. On the other hand, these companies are very publicly touting their kind of high engagement numbers. And ultimately, I just don't know enough to say where the math falls there. Mm. Does the increased engagement overcome the lower ad rates? There is kind of an influx of advertisers moving to esports right now because they see that narrative of people are at home. This is kind of a, a nascent and growing form of entertainment. Ultimately, it's it's really hard to say without a, a closer look at some of the analytics that none of these companies are going to show to us exactly how the math breaks on that. Mm. Well, Mikhail, when you're waiting in a lobby for Star Wars Battlefront 2 and you're chatting with uh, you know people who also happen to be playing this title from, what, 20 years ago. What have you been talking about? I think recently I've been talking a lot about the book The Omnivore's Dilemma. A very weird thing to talk about in a, in a Star Wars Battlefront 2 for the original Xbox lobby. <laughs> but yeah, it's I, I recently exchanged books with a neighbor, actually. Uh, I live very close to a friend of mine. And we realized we both had books that we wanted. And so we swapped. And I got The Omnivore's Dilemma. And I've been slowly making my way through it. For context, it's a book by the journalist Michael Pollan, and basically he sets out to, for lack of a better phrase, figure out the food system in the United States. Basically asking questions like, what is organic food? What does industrial agriculture look like? What would it take for me to create a meal for myself from scratch if I wanted to you know, go out and hunt and forage? And it's really fascinating, and it's it's one of those rare texts that I think maybe unintentionally, or certainly not through being didactic, gets you to reconsider your habits. I went into it thinking it was going to be kind of a, a moralizing book about the horrors of industrial agriculture and like how bad factory farms are. And there are, there are bits and pieces of that in there, sure, but a lot of it is much more written from the plain level of a consumer. The author really feels like an avatar for the reader. He's going through the grocery store and he's asking some of the same questions you might ask if you were wandering through the grocery store trying to put together a meal. And so it, it doesn't feel didactic. It feels very organic, very true to a, a regular person's thought process. Yeah, I've really enjoyed that and I've, I've seen how it's been shifting my, my eating habits. So that's what I've been chatting about. Yeah, it's that's a book that's uh, been on my list for a while, and I've heard many good things about it. It's been it's not necessarily a new book; it's been out for a while, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't realize I hadn't really thought about the book very much, and then midway through, there was some cultural reference that like made me check, and I think it's from two thousand six. Mm. So yeah, it's been quite a while. Very cool. Well, yeah, for my idle chit chat, I want to talk about a story that was published in The Verge. I don't know if they broke the story um, or could have just been a press release by the New York MTA. But essentially, the New York subway system, they've been shutting down every night for four hours to clean and sanitize the subways, which is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a real first in the MTA's history. But it seems like in conjunction with Columbia University's Center for Radiological Research, uh, and they've started implementing UV lights in the subway cars to like try to kill coronavirus particulates uh, that might be mm. kind of lingering around. It's an interesting experiment on like how to deal with 
a viral outbreak, one that's as resilient and can spread so quickly in this way. And it's definitely more pragmatic than, you know, sticking a a UV light down your lungs. So we'll see if uh, what other (laughs) what other interesting things they'll come up with. Obviously, you can't just blast somebody with UV lights because, you know, it it messes with your skin cells. So it's going to be when these carts are empty. But, you know, I was theorizing, like, when I first heard the story, I'm like, oh, are they going to be moving people from, like, train to train? Like, you know, all passengers move to the next train while this one's blasted with UV. But, you know, I could just see that not working out because there's always going to be that one person who's, like, sleeping in the train who just would never want to move. I haven't seen this exact Verge story, but did it include photos of the UV treatment? I don't think so. Because they, they look incredible. I saw some just kind of floating around Twitter recently. It kind of looks like you know something from a sci-fi movie there's just like bright radiant light (laughs) beaming out of the windows of these subway cars and it's such a bizarre sight if you're if you're used to kind of the day-to-day look of these subway cars to just suddenly see them bathed in light very very weird very ominous pictures i do love them so i haven't seen the verge story itself but the pictures of those cars are, are great, and I would urge anyone who's listening to, to seek those out. Mm, very cool. Uh, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan. We're a new show that decided to launch in the midst of a global pandemic. Your subscribes, shares, and ratings are greatly appreciated. If you want to follow me and my writing over at The New York Times, The Washington Post, and elsewhere, follow me on Twitter at Imad. Our producer is Annie Pei. If you have any questions about the show, direct them to her at Pei underscore Annie on Twitter. And our researcher is Ron Lyons. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.